Welcome back to the latest edition of Kansas City's Northeast Newscast. As always, I'm your host, Paul Thompson, and I sat down this week with 5th District Kansas City, Missouri Councilwoman Alicia Kennedy. We begin the conversation by talking about her fond memories of Northeast High School, discuss her accomplishments as the chair of the Neighborhoods and Public Safety Committee, talk about why incentive reform is an issue that resonates so much with her, discuss her priorities if elected mayor of Kansas City, and we talk about how the Kansas City-Missouri City Council continues to function despite its collective mayoral ambitions. My conversation with 5th District Kansas City-Missouri Councilwoman and 2019 mayoral candidate Alicia Kennedy begins right now. Paul Thompson sitting here in the office of Alicia Kennedy. Thank you very much for taking some time with me today. Um, I wanted to start by talking to you about your Northeast Bonafides. So you went to high school at Northeast High School, correct? Yep. What Class was your of 97. Class of 97. What was your experience like there? It was amazing. Um, you know, Northeast has such a deep tradition. Mm-hmm. Like uh, the culture of the school is the most diverse school in the city. Mm-hmm. And um, so it was a very unique experience for me um, being in a learning environment that was um, not only diverse, but very supportive. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the staff. You know, the, the teachers that were there lived in the community. I still have relationships with a lot of them today. Uh, I spent a lot of time in that building, in that community, you know, sometimes from 7 in the morning to 7, 8 o'clock at night. So, yeah. Were you involved in activities there then? A lot. A lot of stuff, yeah. So a lot of, you know, student council, mm-hmm. track, um, you know, basketball for a little bit, football, helping out with, uh, you know, the, it's a manager for the football team for sure. a period of time. So just, you know, because it was such a really good environment to be in, it was safe. Mm-hmm. You know, I really enjoyed high school. Hmm. So you're on student council or you spent some time on student council that uh, sort of cultivate some interest in politics or, or is that coming later? You know what? I, I never really had an interest in politics in the, in the true sense as I live in it today. Uh, I viewed that as student leadership, and I had been a student on student council since elementary school. Mm-hmm. And so class president, vice president, something. I, I've been involved in student council, was involved in student council all the way up until probably my junior year, which is when I started working full-time. Right. Yeah. What were you doing, if you don't mind me asking, working full-time? Um, I started out doing customer service and collections. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I worked during the day. I mean, I went to school during the day from, what, 7 to 2.30, and mm-hmm. Would go to work from three thirty to midnight, three wow. to eleven thirty. So wow, how'd yeah. you manage? Uh, you know, I, that was just like I started that like second semester of my junior year, mm-hmm. and then my senior year only went to school half a day, mm-hmm. and then I got credit for working the rest of the time. Yeah, and so, I did the same thing. Yeah. I, except for I was working at a patio furniture store and building everybody's stuff. Well, so. that's cool too. I wasn't very good at it. Yeah. So hopefully, yeah. I'm sorry for everybody who got that patio furniture that I put together <laughs> for you. I tried my best, um, but. How important was it in sort of your upbringing to go to a school that was that diverse, and how has it shaped you as you've grown into a woman? You know, I think the the draw to me to Northeast at the time was it was a law and public service magnet, mm-hmm. and so it was a magnet school thing that drew me there. Cool. But um, it was such a um, – the people that were there, the staff, the students, I mean, like I said, just a really positive environment. People really enjoyed – people that were there were there for – the enrichment that it offered. We had a really good football team at the mm-hmm. time, um, cross-country team. And so it was a sense of pride, really, that came along with that. Um, it was, you know, a neighborhood school as mm-hmm. well. 
uh, even though I was bussed in from the Vineyard neighborhood off of forty, like off of Forty Third and Elmwood, mm-hmm. um, but it was just it was great, and I think it really helped cultivate a sense of identity um, and confidence in 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 me as a leader, um, and particularly me being involved in community related issues. Sure, interesting. Well, speaking of community related issues, now you chair the Neighborhoods and Public Safety Committee up at City Hall. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is what do you feel has been your signature accomplishment on that committee and your time on council? You know, being um, being a watchman in the sense of being able to get um, staff to provide updates on a number of different issues. Like when we first got on the council, the big issue was in neighborhoods, you mm-hmm. know, dealing with all the, you know, overgrown grass and the blighted houses. Mm-hmm. And so bringing awareness to that issue. And then we've been able to, um, you know, problem solve in the sense of directing money for additional mowing. So we don't get all the calls about high grass that we did in 2015 today, right. three years later. Um, you know, the blighted houses and, you know, all the dangerous buildings within the community. Then, you know, we ultimately did the $10 million to, for the demolition. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we're not we're not getting those complaints to the extent anymore. Um, as it deals to crime, you know, being able to have the public hearings and, and get the engagement from the police department, even though we don't have local control, there needs to be accountability on both sides of the street to respond to residents' concerns and being able to get them to be focused on areas of um, that are problematic in whatever mm-hmm. zone it is and speak on those issues and, and, and create more collaboration. The city's done, we've done a great job of um, doing more community building, mm-hmm. um, particularly in the last three years since I've been on the council um, on purpose, um, and whether it's with the, new, with the new chief adding an additional CIO officer for the second shift or the city co-sponsoring all these community-related activities, movie nights, the youth summer academies, you know, all those things for us to build those positive relationships because um, while there's not one way to address crime, there are, you know, there's a lot of ways to build relationships, and we just try to find ways to be supportive where we can. Yeah, no, I've spent a lot of time with the CIOs and the social workers at uh, Central Patrol and East Patrol, and uh, I, you know, I can speak to the effect that they're having on the community. It's um, it's pretty astounding sometimes. And then I think you know what the residents appreciate most in my role as a chair uh, is that I'm accessible, and when they have issues, you know, I reach out to staff, get answers, provide solutions. Uh, one of the things that I'm most proud about is establishing the Love Thy Neighbor program, mm-hmm. and that was a result of you know there was a perception that we were locking up senior citizens in housing court. Mm-hmm. Well, when I dug a little bit deeper into that, and I found out that there were senior citizens that had ha- uh, warrants for their arrest mm-hmm. um, for code violations and either, you know, physically or financially were un- unable to pay the fines or make the repairs. Mm-hmm. And so there had been a couple that had actually gotten arrested. Mm-hmm. And, well, that's not acceptable when people either physically or financially don't have the means. Mm-hmm. So I started the Love That Neighbor initiative for us to respond as a city to be able to provide support for those families, for either their, um, either senior citizens or disabled persons. All right. And um, Northeast residents will, will probably recognize that program because uh, Love That Neighbor has been down in, in the Northeast part yep. of town. Yep, at least once, and, I think uh, probably twice now. Yeah. Um, but it's been great. We partner with some great community organizations um, to be able to make the impact happen. Uh, the woman whose house that I most recently remember that we did, um, she'd been in that house for probably, I don't know, 40 years or so. Mm-hmm. And her longtime partner had passed away, and she just wasn't able to make the repairs to the house. And, oh, my gosh, the bids we got on her to make repairs to her house were probably about $40,000. Um, and so with the Love That Neighbor Fund and community partners, we were able to abate all the coal violations on the exterior of her house, um, replace some doors, do some additional landscaping, paint the house, 
cut down trees. She had some rotted wood. So we did an extensive, um, we did a lot of love on that property. Mm -hmm. And she was so thankful. I can't recall. Have you identified a funding mechanism for that moving forward? We have. um, We have a couple different funds. And so from some incentive projects. You got something through the airport, too. Didn't you? Um, So there is is some money from the airport that would go to the Love That Neighbor Fund, Mm -hmm. from the Intercontinental uh, CID. They're, They're investing money in the Love That Neighbor Fund. Um, we've identified, it started out with a one-time fund from the sale of, uh, public assets, how we started it out, but going forward, we've been able to have these residual revenues from these other projects that are feeding into it. Is there an idea or can you give an estimate of what that annual budget is like, or, or is it still kind of fluid? Right now, you know, we're at a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. Okay. Um, but you know, it, it's, it's not a, it's not a line item in the city's general fund budget. And so... It, there could be some fluidity, you know, based upon what happens with the airport, uh, if they're able to fully fund it as we, you know, anticipate it, mm-hmm. um, you know, or some of the, the revenues from the CIDs or something like that don't mm-hmm. come in in a timely manner like we expect. Are there any concerns about the airport anymore? I, mean, I think it, there are a lot of concerns. As a matter of fact, I've got a request out to the law department right now for an update on uh, the community benefit agreement because that was the linchpin that uh, encouraged me to be supportive of the proposal that was before us. Um, and we're, you know, all, we're, what, three months shy of a year out. Well, we're almost, we're August, we was in, what, November. Mm-hmm. So we're almost a year out, and I still don't have any finality or confirmation on our ability to move forward on those, those commitments. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I work really hard to negotiate those items along with my colleagues. Um, and, I, and I'd like to have some level of confidence of saying to my constituents, this is what's coming, and right now we don't have that assurance. At this point, is there a a non-zero percent chance that another firm ends up coming up coming in and, and taking it over? You, you own the, I mean, you own all the diagrams, right? You own- well, I think that um, what we're all waiting to see is what comes of this development agreement. Um, we were anticipating having that in August. That's been pushed back. Everything's been pushed back by about six months or so. Um, but I think there are some things that we should have um, full confidence in the ability of uh, the developer to be able to execute at this point, and um, you know, which is why I'm requesting additional information to make sure that we're headed down the right path on that. Um, interesting. So, uh, as far as the renderings that were were presented last week, were, mm-hmm. were you? What was your impression of those? I mean, they. Uh, Six in one hand, half a dozen in the other. I mean, I don't think the renderings are as, as important as the ability to be able to fulfill the project at, at, at the, on the time frame. I mean, we're already double the amount of what the initial proposal was for. Right. Um, you know, the Burns and Mac version was half of what the estimated amount is. We're up to, I think they, they're saying 1.4, but I've heard as much as 1.8 billion. Mm-hmm. I think what we initially had got was like under $900 million. Mm-hmm. So we're literally double. We're, we're already up to double what was quoted initially. And so um, I think all those are factors that we need to look at as, as uh, taxpayers and, and make sure we're making the right decisions. Where's the point of no return though? I mean, well, I, I, I think, um, you know, that that's a political question. Right. That's a political question. Um, when the development agreement comes out, um, the council has to approve it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's not so much as, you know, if the development agreement comes, it's what's in it. Right. Uh, and what's in it for the taxpayers and what's in it for Kansas City. Um, what's in it for Kansas City, you know, we were, we had some really nice packages that we considered 
um, when we were vetting the proposals. Um, and the Edgeware proposal did not have the most attractive package, um, but we were willing to negotiate with them to see what they were able to provide. Um, and so, you know, I've been open to that conversation and have built a really good relationship with them so far. But um, beyond the relationship, I need to know what the substance is of the deal. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I'm asking for additional information. Okay, cool. Um, well, I'm not sure if this is something that you've kind of attacked intentionally uh, but or if you, you went about it with the goal in mind. But you've kind of been fighting incentives between Cordish and what we've talked about with the economic incentive study that came out. You've kind of been leading the charge there against some of the, the expenditures related to incentives in the city. Why does that issue resonate with you? Well, for a lot of reasons. Um, when we talk about the needs of Kansas City uh, and where the money goes, when you look at the pie and where the money's going, you know, you'll hear this administration say all the money goes to public safety, police, and fire. Well, that that's partly true. There's a big chunk of it that goes there. But then of the money that's left... You know, there are a lot of other needs, you know, affordable housing, uh, infrastructure needs. And we keep going out asking taxpayers for, you know, bond authorizations and things like that to generate additional money to cover this stuff. But what are we doing with the money that we do have? Mm -hmm. And so when we found out that this um, 14th Amendment to the Master Development Agreement with Cordish called for a commitment, an endless commitment to subsidize parking garages right. for luxury apartments, but we're told that there's no money for 911 call dispatchers and no money for additional lawn cutting. I mean, city basic services, we don't have money for, but we have money to provide subsidies for parking spaces, $28,000 of parking space. Essentially into perpetuity because that agreement that, lasted till like... It did. And so some people said, well, Alicia, you know, that was a win because we did get the commitment reduced from 99 years down to 30 years or so. I'm like, yeah, but we also committed to an additional three garages. And right now, well, four, essentially, because it's a three-leg garage plus three more. And right, and that's, at today's dollars, that's about $20 million a pop. Mm -hmm. So that means that that $80 million in today's dollars will come from the general fund. Where? there's there, We don't have $80 million in the general fund to pay for it. And so it wasn't against Cordish. It was against our decision to continue to provide subsidy for this type of development. And Cordish just happened to be the developer. It mm -hmm. could have been, you know, it could have been anybody. It could have been one of Ken Block's properties, who, by the way, just is building a building on the plaza mm -hmm. with no subsidy at all. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. with none on the plaza. And so for us to continue to subsidize downtown development at the rate that we are, it, it just doesn't make good business sense. And so I was trying to lay out a business case of why we should have taken a different approach. Um, we got a legal opinion from the law department that said that we weren't obligated to do it. We had the opportunity to renegotiate that agreement. Uh, and, and, and the political will was not there to do it. Um, the mayor... Uh, insisted that um, we needed to keep our agreement, keep our word. And my response was that, well, Cordish provided their assurance that they were going to provide some affordable housing. Where's that at? Mm -hmm. And so they were allowed to kick the can down the road once again. Right. And so but I that think... that argument kind of baffled me at the time that 
well, we have to stay true to our word. We have to honor our agreement. We can't renegotiate. That's exactly what was happening. Well, here's the thing. You were renegotiating. And I have a legal opinion that the Kansas City Star published Uh that said that we were not under any obligation to do any future subsidies because we couldn't, that, that agreement could not bind uh, the council. It was subject to any appropriation. And so, again, that was really a political question. The question was, from a financial standpoint, are we in a position to subsidize um, this parking garage at this juncture based on the current demands on the city budget? Mm-hmm. And I think if anybody watched the budget hearings, this was happening at the same time when we were telling the police that they can't get new officers, that people were having hold times of 10, 15 minutes when they called 911, and we weren't willing to fund new dispatchers. Mm-hmm. When you got police overtime that's out the Yazoo and they're saying it's breaking the budget, but we're willing to divert $20 million to support a parking space, a parking spaces for luxury apartments. And you're agonizing over a firefighter over time, too. And so I, so I raised the argument. It was really just laying out a business case of this is not the best decision at this time. I get that we may have uh, provided those assurances, and that's what sweetened the deal for Cordish to come here, but they don't get to dictate when we make those expenditures. That's our responsibility as a council for us to be able to make those decisions and the city manager, and we, in that instance, I felt like that we were negligent in uh, uh, supporting that appropriation at that time and when we had more critical issues on the table that needed needed um, those dollars. Good. You mentioned the police department, and I, I um, in following your campaign, I, I saw that one of the, the key tenets of it is, is curbing gun violence. Yeah. It, it continues to be an issue. No one really seems to have a solution for that that works. Is there something that that you've thought of or that that you have on your agenda that Ab- hasn't been tried yet? Absolutely. And we and, and my position is firmly that we need to fully adopt the cure violence approach to dealing with gun violence. Mm-hmm. Um, violence is a public health issue, um, whether it's gun violence or gang violence or whatever. But you you've got to deal with the individuals. You know, I, I don't I don't support the rhetoric that we have to wait till the state legislature to do something about guns. Um, you know, law-abiding and citizens with guns aren't the one that's committing these heinous crimes. Mm-hmm. You know, a reasonable person with a firearm is not randomly shooting someone. Right. Um, so whatever the state legislature does about guns is not going to change that. Mm-hmm. What we're seeing in Kansas City anymore is um, social dysfunction. We're seeing the symptoms of mental health, substance abuse issues, and um, people not being able to properly deal with interpersonal conflict. Mm -hmm. That's why so many of these homicides recently have been more domestic in nature, whether it be male and female or, you know, or just people who've known each other for a period of time. Um, And so these are not random strangers shooting people. Uh, I believe that with the public health approach, you deal with the social, emotional, and mental aspects. You create opportunities as alternatives to violence other than telling someone just to put the gun down. Because that's not how you deal with that. You have to redirect negative behavior, which is, you know, how you do that is with, um, you know, whether it's dealing with the trauma through therapy uh, or behavioral, um, uh, behavioral treatment to deal with people who may have um, not necessarily mental health problems, but just, you know, behavior health, just being able to, to transform what your reasonable reaction is to certain things. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, we don't provide enough of those services here in Kansas City. Um, you know, our jail is full, is full of people with mental health issues. And I mean, the problem goes on and on and on. And when these people remain in the community untreated, uh, whether you've been exposed to violence or you inflicted violence on someone and you haven't received any 
social interventions to transform that behavior, mm-hmm. how do you not repeat the cycle? Right. It's inevitable. But we just got done talking about the budget crunch at the city. How can these kind of social intervention and other types of endeavors that you mentioned be funded? Through community partnerships. There are people in the community already right now that are doing that. And and, and let's be realistic. We have the, the combat fund, which is over $20 million a year, mm-hmm. that's supposed to be addressed to dealing with violence in Kansas City. You know, the community-backed anti-drug tax. Well, it's not so much just drugs anymore. It's drugs and violence. Uh, which includes interventions, prevention and intervention. Mm-hmm. A big chunk of that money goes to law enforcement. A portion of it goes to community-focused intervention and prevention, but not enough of it is going to deal with the therapy treatment intervention services. We do some drug treatment, um, not enough mental health. Even the Jackson County Mental Health Fund, who's impacted by when we issue TIFs, mm-hmm. their revenues are being redirected. That fund is only $8 million a year. Mm-hmm. And then every time we issue an incentive... Uh, every time we issue an incentive, you're redirecting money from the Jackson County Mental Health Fund, which will provide these services. So I think there is a way for us to coordinate the resources we do have, as well as um, increase opportunities. Because if you take a public health approach, mm-hmm. there are additional dollars that are available through grants and foundations to support um, um, trained community health workers, behavioral health counselors, to put them throughout the community. Okay. Well, good answer. I appreciate uh the, the, the reasoned response there. Um, I did want to talk a little bit more about your candidacy for mayor, but I wanted to look forward first to the next big debate at City Hall. And I know that sometimes these kind of things intertwine, but do you see what, what that next big fight is going to be on, on the council or what the next hot button issue might be at, at City Hall? Who's going to be the mayor? That's the next hot button issue. Well, I guess, okay, well, that kind of dovetails into what I was going to, my follow-up was, I mean, there's five five members of city of the city council that are, are running for mayor. What's your relationship like with those mayoral candidates at this point? I mean, how can it not be contentious at this point, and, and how can you keep it from being contentious as you get closer and closer to this mayoral primary? I think we all have responsibility to govern uh, with the with the residents in mind. Mm-hmm. I think um, as professionals, it's it's very easy to accomplish that if we keep that at the forefront of everything we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, we have been very collegial amongst each other throughout my term on this council, so I don't see that necessarily changing mm-hmm. um, per se. Um, but, you know, we've had some incidents where people are accused of politically posturing sure. by sending out political mail pieces in advance of legislation um, and things of that nature and, and get called out for it. I mm-hmm. mean, and, and frankly, the mayor's been called out for this early childhood mm-hmm. piece as well in the political nature in which he introduced that. So, and he's not running for mayor again. But it's uh, some of it is kind of like mind-numbing. I mean, when when is the is the rebuke to politicking also politicking? You know, like, like well, he's got are, political needs in mind and then you call him out and is that almost not politicking too in a way well i don't think calling people out for for politicizing a policy measure is is political Mm -hmm. it's ethical right and i think um we have to always maintain that level of professionalism and integrity in how we govern Mm -hmm. because we are utilizing taxpayer dollars and resources to advance a political agenda that may or may not be in the best interest of the public that's not okay. Right. Um, but I think in this in this in this context, if there are some good legislative items that come out of someone wanting to use it as a platform, 
by all means, I would be supportive of it if it benefits the residents. I think the, the residents could stand to benefit from people wanting to show up and, and do something that's going to have impact right. um, so they can, you know, say, look at what I did. Right. So it's not all bad. I just think it's, you know, it's not what you do, it's how you do it. Right. Not interesting. And in terms of contentious relationships at this point, there's not anything like that brewing in your opinion? I mean, I, I don't have that experience, and but I can't speak for anyone else. Um, but I, I, I'll tell you, I mean, we're all so busy. I don't know when you really have the opportunity to really, you know, go there. Um, you know, my first campaign um, to, for the council seat, you know, was pretty contentious. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I've not experienced anything like that amongst my council colleagues thus far. But, I mean. There's still have, time, I guess. Yeah, I, yeah, I think <laughs> there's still time. But, it's, you know, yeah. it's it's not so much as, you know, what someone else does. It's how you respond to it that right. determines if there's a fight or not. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I, I look to uh, my fave, Michelle Obama says, when they go low, you go high. Mm -hmm. And so that that's my approach. All right, cool. Um, well, I'll end on this then. Why should a resident of the historic Northeast vote for you for mayor? Um, I've had a lifetime of experiences in Kansas City and, and deep relationships with people who know who I am and, and what I represent, uh, and I've been a consistent advocate for residents, um, making sure that Kansas City remains a safe place where people can be successful, um, that where we have the opportunity to grow KC together, that you know, Northeast, Southeast, you know, West Side and the East Side all have equal opportunities to benefit from the economic boom that's occurring. Um, and so I've demonstrated the ability to be able to recognize opportunities and advocate on behalf of all neighborhoods uh, in that manner. But more importantly, uh, I've demonstrated a level of leadership that people can respect and trust. And so uh, I'm hopeful that residents will be paying attention during this political cycle um, at the track record of how people have supported issues that impact the neighborhoods and, and maybe how they've supported issues that did not benefit neighborhoods, whether it be safety or you know, public investment dollars. Mm -hmm. um, but more importantly, how people lead in their character. Excellent. Cool. Well, I'll turn this thing off. I appreciate your time. Thank All you right. so much. All right. Once again, that was 5th District Kansas City, Missouri Councilwoman Alicia Kennedy, also a 2019 mayoral candidate. I'd like to thank her for sitting down with the Northeast News this week and being so open about some of the issues that are important to her in Kansas City. I'd also like to reach out to the listeners and thank them once again for tuning in to the latest edition of Kansas City's Northeast Newscast. This is your host, Paul Thompson, signing out.